The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you're a God of truth and you do not at all shy away from our, our questions and our doubts. Thank you that you are a God who is near. You've come in the flesh in Jesus Christ. Um, thank you that you're a God who's approachable. You hear our prayers and you speak to us, not just communally, but also individually, through your word, through your spirit. So come and speak to us now, Lord, as we bring our questions to you, as we bring our pains to you. Lord, let us see who you are, what you've done, and help us to put all our hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're new with us, we are on our third sermon in a series uh, we're calling Have an Answer. And we get this idea from 1 Peter 3.15, and there the apostle writes, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So basically, the apostle is telling Christians that you shouldn't only know what you believe, but you should know why you believe it. You should have a hope, and you should have reasons for that hope. And when people in the world around you bring questions or even challenges to that hope, you should be able to have reasons for what you believe and prepare and have an answer for that. Um, And we'll remember it's not a suggestion. It's an, issue, it's an issue of obedience. As Christians, this is one of the unique things about us, is what we believe in our hope is grounded on historical events. It's grounded on things that really happen with real people in real places. And so we believe things will happen because of what we know has happened. And we see uh, what God has done. So we need an answer. And uh, the last two weeks, if you're interested, we've been talking about the trustworthiness of Scripture. So we looked at... Um, Are the copies trustworthy that we're reading? Uh, Are there contradictions in the Bible? Are these the right books we're looking at? Uh, We're moving on that from uh, we're moving on from that this morning to something that is honestly probably the the toughest one there is. And so we're dealing with the challenge of evil today. And basically, here's the question: How can you believe in God? when all history is just chock full of massive, undescribable evil. And you hear the challenge, don't you? Because the assertion is, well, you believe in God, he's good, he's powerful, and yet you look around you, you don't have to look far, and you see all sorts of evil and suffering that seems to contradict the idea that God is good and powerful. He doesn't seem to act or act on time or act in the right way. Um, If he's good and he's powerful, then why doesn't he do something? So maybe he's not good, maybe he's not powerful, or maybe he's he's not at all. Maybe he's not. And I'll tell you just honestly, this challenge is the toughest one for me personally. For me personally, and it's not the, uh, the thing that's challenging about this for me is not the just broad evil that we talk about and the numbers. It's the individual story. It's the one person, and you hear what they've gone through, and you see their situation, and it just rips you in half, and then you think, why? Why? 
it seems, it seems like too much. It seems unjust, meaningless. And so you think, gosh, is what I believe, is this even real? Is this even real? So I haven't experienced many of the things that some of you have. I realize that the problem of evil is not theoretical in this room. Um, many of you have experienced horrible evil, or you know people that have experienced horrible evil, or let's be honest, some of us have done horrible evil. And so it's not a game, um, and I realize that. So I mean this very, very seriously, very honestly, and it is a problem, right? It's a challenge, it's, it's, so it's going to be a question that people bring to us, and it's also a challenge of the heart, and that reminds us that there really are two angles for us when we deal with this question or this challenge. One is the rational angle, so it's just some people believe that the existence of evil or the amount of it just logically invalidates the possibility that there's God at all. It's just irrational, it's illogical. So we do have to answer um, with the mind and, and question these things. But there's also the heart answer, which is probably more difficult. Even if your mind agrees that it's possible there's a good God and still evil in this world, that doesn't undo the fact that, I don't know how else to say it other than this, the fact that evil hurts deeply. It hurts deeply. And so you could, you could agree, right, that it's rational for God to allow it, or however you want to phrase that. You could, agree, you could agree that it's rational for God to allow it, but you could really not like that he's allowed it. Or you could not like him for allowing it. And I just want to say right here, the Bible is so sensitive to that. I love the Bible. I love the Bible. The Bible says there's no evil. The Bible never says evil's no big deal. The Bible never says, suck it up, buttercup. Let me read to you a prayer from the Bible. I'm going to read to you 18 verses from Lamentations 3. So just listen to it. Close your eyes if you want. This is the Bible, Lamentations 3, 1 to 18. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. And made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope.
from the Lord. You can only read that and say, wow. Who is the he in the prayer? It's God. So what's amazing to see here is that this is a prayer to God about God inspired by God. That's amazing. That's amazing. There's so many things you could see here. Um, One is God doesn't seem to be intimidated by our honest hurts about evil, does he? (laughs) He doesn't seem to be intimidated at all. Come as you are, he seems to be saying. Um, Not only that, If God is inspiring that, you see God's empathy and God's compassion. So, what are we going to do? Well, this is one sermon, okay? If we went to my office, I have a small collection of books when when you're thinking of this topic, and my collection is like this. So, we can only do so much. But we're going to try to walk through three answers to the problem of evil today. Three answers, three Christian answers. First, the rational answer. We'll start off easier. The rational answer. Second, the heart answer. As Christians, we have the best answer for the heart when it comes to evil of anything out there. The rational answer, the heart answer. And finally, quickly, we'll look at our text in Acts to look at the life answer. A Christian's life answer. So the rational answer, the hard answer, the life answer. So how do we spawn to the problem of evil? Well, to do this, first of all, we need to define evil a little bit, don't you think? We need to try to say, okay, what is this? The dictionary I looked at says this, evil is profound immorality and wickedness. Immorality. So number one, there is a wrong aspect to it. It's wrong. It's not right. So there's an idea that it should not happen. It's not right. It's not good. Another thing that it implies is that the innocent are suffering. So it seems meaningless or at least or diabolical. For instance, when Hitler died, no one said, why God, how could you let this happen? Right? We're like, finally. Because it seemed like there's a measure of justice there. That's why we feel that way. If we see a measure of justice, okay, he had it coming or something like that. The hard part for me is when it seems so unjust, so cruel, right? That's the pain of it. So it implies a wrong aspect. It implies something like the innocent suffering, that kind of a thing. So then we're saying that if we, if we follow this road, we're saying that It's breaking a standard because how can you know what's wrong unless you know what's right? I don't think you can. If there's a wrong, there's a right, which means there's a standard. This is right. That is wrong. So we all struggle, I know, when children are hurt. That's just killer for all of us. It hurts us so much because we know that it's right that children have value. And we know that it's right that children should be cherished and protected. Amen? That is right. 
And anything that breaks that is wrong. But we know the right and the wrong, and we know what's righteous and what's evil because we have the standard. And the standard is part of the definition of evil. So how can there be a good God and there still be evil? How can you have a standard without God? How can you have a standard of right and wrong without God? The truth is, I don't think you can. Any standard apart from God is, number one, arbitrary, and number two, meaningless. Any standard apart from God is arbitrary and meaningless. Arbitrary. How many of you all think humans are a good, safe standard for good and evil? Do you know any group of people out there where you're like, that's it right there? That's the standard of good and evil. No, 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 no. It is at best arbitrary with humans. Okay? Think of our view of other cultures. We live in a postmodern world, right? There are cultures today who think that women should not be seen and should not drive and be married off as children. And that is a part of their culture. And in the West, how do we feel about that culture? We think it's evil. By the way, I agree. But what is our standard for making that claim? Because if, all, if, if it's just up to humans to set what's right and wrong, well, they say that over there is right and wrong. We say this over here is right and wrong. Who's really right or wrong if it's up to humans? It's arbitrary. And postmodern authors are saying, yeah, this is how morals go. We each make our claim, and the strongest wins. Whoever has the power, defines the morals, sets the standard for the day, whether people like it or not. But that is arbitrary. It's not a real standard. So any standard apart from God is arbitrary, and humans aren't very trustworthy for this. Second, any standard apart from God is meaningless. We need to remember that all these things connect together. And so if we say, oh, there's, I can't believe in a God because of evil, okay. But you have to realize that these ultimate beliefs determine everything else we believe. And so without God, what are we? Okay? If there's no spiritual aspect to the universe, then all reality is purely physical and material, Right? If there's no spiritual aspect, then all reality is purely physical and material. And what fits in that, all, that statement? All reality is physical and material. You know what else fits into that statement? Morals. Standard. We're all just fancy bags of chemical juice reacting according to chance and physical law. And that means our morals are too. Listen to this interview with Richard Dawkins. Anybody know him? Okay. Atheist rock star. Interviewer says this to Mr. Dawkins. When you make a value judgment, and just, by the way, value judgment, same thing as morals, right and wrong, okay? When you make a value judgment, don't you immediately step yourself outside of this evolutionary process and say that the reason this is good is that it's good, and you don't have any way to stand on that statement. Dawkins says, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. So from the outside looking in, you see he's, 
He's saying, well, evolution has worked values within it. So the interviewer again. So therefore, it's just as random, in a sense, as any product of evolution. And stepping outside the conversation again, the, the interviewer said, so if it's all random and a part of chance, then so are morals. And Dawkins says, yeah, I could have got values from my evolutionary past. But then the interviewer says, okay, so even your morals, and it's just random just like everything else. Dawkins says, you could say that, It doesn't in any case. Nothing about it makes it more probable that there's anything supernatural. Then the interviewer comes back. Ultimately, he says to Mr. Dawkins, your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. And Dawkins responds with, you could say that, yeah. He's being consistent. You have to give him that. He's being consistent. If all reality is material and physical, then so are morals. And if all reality is random, and according to physical law, then so are morals. And so really, in the end, there aren't morals. There's no standard. So do you see where we're we're going so far? Evil, by definition, breaks a standard. Okay? And then I'm saying... There's no standard if there's no God. Which it's, so, so what we're seeing here is that it's not that the reality or the presence of evil invalidates the reality of God. We're seeing that the reality of God, if you say there is no God, then there's no evil either. You cannot have evil without God. And don't get me wrong, you can have God without evil, and we will. But you cannot have evil without God because by, defini- by definition, evil has in it a standard. And without God, there's no standard. There's no real standard. So Tim Keller jumps in on this with this statement. People, we believe, Keller says, ought not to suffer, be excluded, die of hunger or oppression. How many of you are like, yes, amen? Okay, me too. But, Keller says, the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. All these things are perfectly natural. On what basis, then, does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, and unjust? Good question. Good question. If all of reality is survival of the fittest, the strong wind, do what you want to the weak, that's how we survive, that's how we grow, then all the horrid injustices we've seen in history, they weren't evil, they were natural, they were normal. This really is what got into C.S. Lewis's brain. And so he, and he, he started out an atheist, and then through a process of thinking, struggling, searching, became convinced of Christianity. This is what he writes about the problem of evil. He wrote this in Mere Christianity. Lewis said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, 
find myself in such violent reaction against it. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument against God depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. So we come to God and we say, God, how can you be if the world is so unjust? And God seems to say, how can just be if I'm not here? Do you see? For there to be objective evil, there must be objective good. For there to be objective good, there must be an objective God. Evil, for all all its pain and suffering and, and all the horrible things to it, is actually a very strong argument for the existence of God. It's an argument for the existence of God. Because if you don't believe in God because of evil, you can't really believe in evil either. Did you see that? So the problem of evil isn't just a problem for Christians. It's a problem for everyone. As Christians, we have to explain why we could believe in a good, just God while there still is evil in our midst, and we do have to explain that. For an atheist, they have to explain why they believe in evil at all if there's no God and why they're so angry about it. Because they are angry about it. So, that's part of the rational argument. Because of the definition of evil, there has to be God for there to be evil. One more aspect of this rational argument Part of the problem, and we're leaning in towards the heart's response to evil now, part of the problem with evil is the apparent meaninglessness of it, right? I mean, that's the problem for me. Again, with some of these things, if we see a measure of justice in it, we're like, okay. Um, But when it seems so unjust, so meaningless, that's where it burns. Wouldn't you agree? That's That's where it stings me. And so now there's this question of, what about all the meaningless evil? I feel it. I feel it. I have that question. For our purpose here, I hope it's helpful. I'm going to give you somewhat of a lengthy Facebook page quote thing. And the reason I'm putting it out here is because it got like 65,000 likes. Okay? And so it seems to be a version of a popular expression of this problem. All right? So I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to try to summarize what I think the quote is saying. I think there's major, two major things here, and try to answer that, okay? So here's the quote from the Facebook page. It says, I've been a deep believer all, my whole life, 18 years as a Southern Baptist, more than 40 years as a mainline Protestant. I'm an ordained pastor, but it's just stopped making sense to me. You see people doing terrible things in the name of religion, and you think, these people believe just as strongly as I do. They're just as convinced as I am. And it just doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't make sense to believe in a God that dabbles in people's lives. If a plane crashes and one person survives, everyone thanks God. They say, God had a purpose for that person. God saved her for a reason. Do we not realize how cruel that is? Do we not realize how cruel it is to say that if God had a purpose for that person, he also had a purpose in killing everyone else on the plane? 
and a purpose in starving millions of children, and a purpose in slavery and genocide. For every time you say there's a purpose behind one person's success, you invalidate billions of people. You say there's a purpose to their suffering, and that's just cruel. Okay. What's he saying? And part of the problem with a quote like this is it shoots out after like six or seven massive issues all at once without giving you really a genocide. You, you can't really answer this without a couple hours. Two basic things. He says it doesn't make sense that there's sincere believers doing terrible things. That's one thing he said. The second thing is he seems to really be struggling with the idea of attributing meaning to suffering. Okay? So number one, he says, if we attribute meaning to a positive, yay for us, but then we're also attributing meaning to the negative, and that seems horrid and cruel. And so he says, that does, he says attributing meaning to suffering just doesn't make sense. I can't see how it's meaningful. And so he says it's, it's, it's cruel to say there's a meaning to suffering because we can't do it in a way that doesn't invalidate all the sufferers. Do you hear what he's saying? So, two major categories that I'll try to deal with briefly. One, sincere believers doing terrible things. Two, the idea of attributing meaning to suffering because this, this category, how can this suffering have meaning? That's part of the rational problem with God and evil. It seems so meaningless. Number one, I'm not um, taken aback at all by the idea of sincere believers doing terrible things. That doesn't shake me for a moment. Let me tell you why. Louis Marcos is an apologetics writer, and he writes about how our recent generations have more ability to stop evil and suffering than any of our generations ever, and yet we're more bothered by suffering than any other generation ever in the way we write. Isn't that strange? We're, we're more riled up about the, the reality of evil now when we have actually more technology and in some ways, in some spots anyway, at least where we live, more peace in our lives, more comfort. I mean, when compared to the world, I haven't really suffered at all. But we're really bothered by it. And, and Marcos's answer to that was, our generations in the West especially have lost the idea of responsibility and sin. So people in the past, no matter what religion they were, they, had, they did have an idea they messed things up. And they needed to fix it somehow. In our day, we're a bit more entitled. He blames it on authors like Rousseau, if you know him. Rousseau basically said, the problem's not sin, it's we need more education and we need to eliminate poverty. If we do that, um, the world will be a better place. We will, uh, there, we'll, we'll get rid of evil. I remember a conversation I had with, my, um, with someone in my life. And he said, no, if we just eliminate poverty and educate people, evil and suffering will go away. Anybody tempted by that? Who's caused uh, the greatest suffering of modern times? The poor people or the educated people? The poor people or the educated rich? Listen, education and wealth only enables you to commit greater deeds of evil. And that is easily proven by history. Sincere believers who do wrong. Here's where we run into the concrete reality of what the Bible has always asserted. There is something 
in this conversation we need to reckon with, and that is the fact that there's evil in the world because people are evil. People are evil. We do things that we know are wrong that cause others to suffer. Have you, any, have you ever done anything that you knew was wrong that caused others to suffer? I have many times. And that was evil. And when we do that together as a team, as nations and cultures over generations and generations, the effects can be catastrophic. Where whole groups believe sincerely horrible things and do horrible things. And they are both victims and they are criminals. Just like you and I. But evil is a hobby the entire human race shares and enjoys together. That's a part of the conversation that doesn't seem to come up in the paragraph. I do evil. You do evil. What do we as a race deserve from God? Here's the second issue, the idea of God dabbling. Did you hear that? God dabbling. He's like, I'll let you live in the plane and the rest of you are going to die. And it seems capricious. It seems like he's toying. It, it's, it doesn't seem loving. It seems ungodlike. So there's this wall we run into where it just seems meaningless, the meaninglessness. Now, he mentioned the idea that what some people say about evil, it's cruel. And I, I just want you to know I'm on his team with that. <laughs> Sometimes there'll be a national uh, disaster or a huge tragedy, and some Christian figurehead person will be like, well, that's because of the... And it'll throw some group out there. And I don't know about you, but I'm just like, oh. Not on my team. He's got a point when, you know, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that I can tell you, that I could show you the meaning behind every suffering. I certainly can't. I certainly can't. There are, there are episodes and things that happen. Why did this happen? Where I'd have to say, I don't know. In any detailed way, I don't, I don't know. It's too much. But that doesn't mean, just because I don't know the meaning of it, that doesn't mean there is no meaning to it. That doesn't mean there's no meaning to it. Let me give you a few. All we need to do here, this is again the rational part of responding to evil. We don't need to be able to prove as Christians that every single evil and suffering has a certain meaning to it. We couldn't. We shouldn't. But can we establish that it's certainly possible and perhaps probable, that God has good reasons for allowing certain kind of evil and that there is meaning to it in his mind and in people's lives. Here's a few things about suffering and evil. Number one, God gives us responsible choices. We're made in the image of God. And so we can do things for good, we can do things for evil. So part of, part of the problem of evil is the reality that we, we're so influential in each other's lives, and that's part of the glory of who we are, but we've twisted it. Second, what would happen if God ended evil right now? This is one of my favorite questions for myself. What would happen if God said, all right, no more evil? Well, there's only two, two options as far as it goes with me. Number one, he takes me to heaven or two, he kills me, which would be both, I guess, same thing. My point is this. If we want evil to end right now, 
What is that going to mean for your life today? What would that mean for you? He would have to kill you. He would have to take you to glory. Because this afternoon, I'm going to commit evil. And so are you. Some of us in this room right now have evil we know that we are practicing in our minds and our hearts, and we will not let it go. And we're going to practice it this week in our relationships, and we will not stop. And for us to say, God, how can you allow evil? And God's like, you should be glad I'm allowing a little of it. Because if I ended this mess right now, I would end you right now. That's a part of this conversation. Peter says God's patient. He's patient with us. And so there is an allowing of evil because he's patient. He's going to save his people. And if he came right now, if he ended it right now, some of the people he plans on on saving, they're not saved yet. Number three, are there any stories of God bringing good through suffering and evil? The Bible's full of them. Think of Joseph, that brother. He went through some evil, okay? Kidnapped, slave, a long time. Innocent, accused, jail, meets friends. Hey, get me out. They forget him. Evil, suffering, terrible. How many times could he have had questions? God, I'm a good dude. I love you. Why are you cursing me? What did God do with, that, with Joseph's life and Joseph's suffering? He saved his people. He saved the world from a famine. Is it possible that there's meaning to suffering, even when we can't see it? Not only that, what about our own testimonies? Would any of you in this room be able to say, God used evil or suffering, something negative in my life, to bring out real positives? I never would have been changed. I never would have been humbled. I never would have been conformed in a certain way if God hadn't made it hard for me in some ways. I would say that. There's evidence of meaning in our lives. And finally, the last thing I'll say here is, do you remember the book of Job? Job is all about meaning and suffering. And it's, it's set up so well because the man who's suffering is like the most righteous, godly dude ever. Right? The, the beginning of the book sets this up. This guy is so amazing. He's a good dude. God loves him. And then he suffers more than, more than anyone you can think of. Suffering, suffering, suffering. And so the whole book, and it's 38 chapters or so, right? Or No, it's more than that. Anyway, a bunch of chapters. Takes you a long time. The whole question is, what's the meaning in this? And you know how God answers that? I'll give you five verses from Job 38. The Lord came and answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? Job is asking, God, why are you doing this to me? What's the meaning of this? Answer for how you can be who you are and there's all this evil and suffering in my life. And God comes and says, where were you when I made everything? That's a rhetorical question. What is God meaning to say to Job? Job, I love you. There's a lot you don't know. That's what God's saying. There's a lot you don't know. So what do we do with this idea that suffering seems so meaningless? This is what I do with it. There's a lot I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. And there's only one person who could know it. And that's God. 
But, but you see, so much of the world is skeptical enough to doubt God and say, this suffering is meaningless, therefore there's no God. But as they posit this, they're saying one who is theoretically has all power and all knowledge and created everything, he can't put meaning to it that we don't see. But we know enough to look at suffering and be like, aha, I know, it's all meaningless. Do you see what's happening there? I'm so skeptical towards God, the all-knowing one who made everything, that he can't put meaning into suffering. But I'm very confident in my own abilities that I can see into all suffering and know for a fact that it's meaningless. That's blind faith. That's unreasonable. It's illogical. So, try to wrap this first part up. What is a Christian response to the problem of evil? Number one, because evil by definition has a moral quality to it, a moral standard in it, there is no evil without God. Because God is the only one who could be that standard. And second, because of who God is, even though evil seems meaningless, within the themes of God's justice and his sovereignty and his grace, as Christians, we are called to believe that there is meaning we don't know of and that God is working his purposes out within it in all righteousness. And that, that's, that's, a promise to, that's a promise to believe, isn't it? But is there reason, is there evidence for that promise? that God can bring good out of evil and suffering. Certainly there is. And what's, one last thing it brings up is, you know, if there is a God because there is evil, then does God have the right to be God? Does God have the right to be God? Does the one who made and sustains and creates life, does he have the right to do what he pleases with his creation? He does. So that's some of the Christian's rational response to the reality of evil. But what about the heart problem? And this is a problem, I think, for, all, I think for anybody who's looked at evil, this is a problem. How can it not be? How can it not be a problem? Evil is. It is. You read the news. How do you feel when you read the news? I feel depressed. You ever had anybody tell you that? I read the news and I feel depressed because of evil. Right now, right now. There are people being killed in wars and battles. There are people in the, the slave trade, which is fierce and rampant all around the world. There are Christians being killed for being Christians right now. Evil is. So at some point, as we're questioning, we come to the reality that we can't really say, hey, stop the world, I'd like to get off. Where's the exit for the non-evil life. <laughs> Where's that place? Because can I go live there? No, we realize that whether we like it or not, despite all the philosophies and everything else, we live in an evil place with evil people of whom I am one. What now? What now? Given the reality of evil and that we can't just jump ship anytime soon, what's the best answer for it? Where should we go in it? And now, of course, is where we want to look at the Lord Jesus. The only answer for the heart, I think, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is the most innocent person to ever live? It's Jesus. He never did anything wrong. 
More than that, he always did what was right, every time. Always loved, always truthful, obeyed every command. Perfect. He's innocent. Among all the people who ever lived, who did not deserve suffering the most? It's Jesus. There he is, the sinless one. And yet, what did Jesus endure? Jesus walked face on into the worst evil and suffering the world has ever seen. He walked face on into it. So when that Mr. Facebook man says that God dabbles, if you want to look at plane crashes, it can appear that way. But if you want to look at Jesus, you know that God does not dabble in suffering. God has suffered in Jesus. He suffered. He suffered more than anyone has ever suffered. God is not distant or dabbling when it comes to suffering. He knows it well. He knows it well. There's Jesus' personal experience physically. There's Jesus' spiritual experience, which is worse, where fellowship with the one he has loved eternally was broken off. We read it today. God made him who knew no sin to what? To be sin. In that moment on the cross, the Father who has eternally loved the Son saw the Son as the rapist as the murderer, as the dictator, as the thief, as the coveter, as the stealer, the liar, the cheater, the sneak, the, the bomb exploder, the gun shooter, the knife stabber. The father looked at Jesus. Jesus became sin on the cross. Jesus endured evil in a way you and I never will. This means that this Christian gospel has the ability to save you in evil and suffering. Number one, it can save you in the pain. It can save you in the pain. And this is, I think, totally unique. You, know, you look at the other gods and all the other theories, and none of them will come this close to you in your suffering. And Jesus you know, you look at his stories with the raising Lazarus. You look at his compassion for those sick. He comes right in. He touches the leper. He's, he moans with an anger at the grave of Lazarus, his, his anger of evil. He weeps with Mary. He knows unjust suffering so well. And he is with his people right next to them in all empathy and compassion in their suffering. Sometimes in suffering, haven't you noticed, you don't need an answer. You need a friend. You need a presence. Jesus is that in a unique way that no one else is. He knows. He can save you in the pain. Moreover, he can save you from the penalty and the power of your own evil. Why is he the innocent one on the cross? Because I've got evil problems, and you've got evil problems. And on the cross, Jesus took my evil. He took the penalty of my evil upon himself. 
He took the power of my evil and broke it in his death and resurrection so that I can be totally forgiven, washed clean, given a changed heart so that I start to want the beauty and righteousness of God and turn away from my own evil. Justified, sanctified, reconciled, adopted. These are the words we get from Jesus, saving us from the penalty and power of our own evil. Moreover, he saves us from the despair. And that, that guy in that Facebook quote said it's mean to, um, or cruel to ascribe meaning to suffering. How's this going to, some of you have suffered a lot. How is this going to comfort you? I'm sorry, there's no meaning to your suffering. There's no hope either, so suffer away. At least you can know God wasn't personally involved. Are you consoled that there's no meaning in your suffering? Is that helping you? Is that giving you courage, joy, peace? No meaning. I don't think that's very helpful. I would like some meaning in mine. I need some. And Jesus' resurrection puts a stamp on the, the reality that you don't need to despair in the evil and the suffering because there is a victory at the end. He walked through the worst that evil and suffering could produce, and he won. And he's going to walk you through the same thing. You'll win in the end. You'll be vindicated in the end. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You'll be comforted. Sometimes that hope is all you have. But it's enough. It saved you from the despair because he rose, and it saved you from the despair because he's coming back. Evil is a limited time offer. So if you'd like to do it, do it now. Because there will be a day when it's uh, no longer in vogue. There'll be a day when it's no longer the major practice, there will be a day when Jesus comes back and, and, and ends evil. And we will be set free from the burden of our own evil, from the pain of everyone else's evil. Dostoevsky wrote, I believe in, there's, when there, in a day when everything wrong will be made right. Jesus is not just going to come and take us up to the spiritual clouds. He's, he's going to renew everything. He's going to renew you. He's going to heal it. He's going to answer it. He's going to resolve it. Every tear wiped away. Evil will end. So you can't get off this world. But you can be part of the redemption of this world. And you can get a ticket to the next one. Because of the Lord Jesus. And to me, that is the most compelling and powerful heart answer to evil that exists on the planet. There's no one like Jesus to save us out of evil. So how should we respond? There's a rational response, a heart response, now a life response. And this is what I want to do just real quickly from Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles are facing their first persecution. They've begun to proclaim the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit has done amazing things through them, and they're facing their first persecution. In the next levels, there's going to be things like whippings and beatings, and then soon after that, there's going to be murders. They're facing evil. They love God, they know God, and now here's where evil and their lives collide. And we see in their response 
a beautiful picture and I think a guide for how we can respond to evil. Now, you remember we preached through Acts a long time ago. We went through this in, in depth. I'm flying over it right now. I'm looking at principles, okay? Principle number one. Did you hear their prayer? Look at it again. Acts chapter 4, 23 to 24 is where we'll start. When they released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Number one, first thing I see. Were they naive about evil? Were they like, oh, the kings of the world, they're not that bad, everything will be okay. Humans are generally good, just a little more education, we'll be fine. Okay? No. You know what Christians can be because of the gospel? We have an amazing ability to be very honest about evil without being overwhelmed by evil. The cross tells us, yep, evil. (laughs) People are evil. And the cross tells us, Grace for those who are evil, hope for those who are evil, hope for those who are suffering because of evil. Amazing. Are Christians glass half empty or glass half full people? With the gospel, we're both. We're so bad, Jesus has to die for us. How bad are we? It's bad. Evil's real. And yet, he did die for us. There's love, there's hope, there's power. We can be honest about evil. We can look it right in the eye. We can weep in it. We can walk through it. Because of Jesus. Be honest about evil. Number two. I think this is really important. Verse 23. What did they do when they were released? When they were released, what did they do? They went to their friends. Friends. You guys, what gets you through evil better than a friend? A friend who's right there on your level with you. Especially if the friend knows the gospel with you. The apostle set for us a pattern here, and Luke's giving it to us. What do we want to do when we're depressed and discouraged and evil is overwhelming? Where would you find me if I got, did what I wanted to do? I'd be in a fetal position in my bed, sucking my thumb with an empty bottle of whiskey next to me. Don't you want to hide? Don't you want to sleep? Don't you want to run away? Pull the blankets over your head. Where should you go? Go see your Christian brothers and sisters. Go see your friend. Go sit with them. Look them in the eye. Give them a hug. Be with them. They went to their friends. If your friend is suffering, go be with them. Don't talk at first. Just be with them. Visit them. If you're suffering, don't hide. Go see your friend. There's an amazing power for encouragement and fellowship there. This is a response to the church. Be honest about evil. Be a friend in the midst of evil. Number three, trust your sovereign God. What they do together, verse 24? And when they heard it, they went to 7-Eleven to grab a bottle of vino and some bonbons. <laughs> what they do together? When they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God. And what do they call him? Sovereign Lord. There's a deep trust here. They go to God immediately. This is a scary thing for them. They go to God with their concerns, just like Lamentations 3 and all the Psalms and everything else. When you have the stirring of struggling in the midst of evil, go to friends, go to the Lord together and say, this is what I've got right here. Trust the Lord and pray. Be honest, because there's there's no point in trying to shine yourself up before God like a first date, uh, because he already knows what you're thinking anyway. 
Be honest. And trust. Trust the Bible. Trust the Bible. You see the apostles looking back at Psalm 2 and seeing how the storyline works and what's going on and applying it in their lives. They're trusting the Bible. It's giving them courage. It's giving them perspective. And they're trusting the cross. Here's the money line in this verse. Sovereign Lord, they pray Psalm 2. Now look at me at verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, read the next line with me, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you think when the apostles saw the cross, they were all like, oh, now we get it. it all, there's so much meaning. Or did they think, all hope is lost. Our Messiah is shamed and crucified. No meaning here. And yet they've learned something from the resurrection. God was sovereign in the worst evil and suffering ever for the good of his people in the cross. And for the apostles, that means God is sovereign right here and now for us. He's sovereign right here and now for us. So you're trusting the Bible, you're trusting the cross, you're trusting the timing. God, you work out your purposes. So they were honest about evil, they were friends, they trusted their sovereign God, and then the last thing, what do they pray for? Get me out of this evil. (laughs) No, no. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to what? Continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. They pray that in the midst of evil, God would enable them to love boldly. Love boldly. They're going to go out, they're apostles, they're given a unique gift from the Spirit, they're going to do miracles, but their miracles are miracles of love to help those suffering from evil. And their message is a word of the gospel, to save those trapped in evil. So we're honest about evil. We're a friend in evil. We trust our sovereign God in evil. And all this adds up to this, let's love boldly in the midst of evil. This is our chance because we have what the world doesn't have. And we are who the world isn't. We can see evil for what it is, know God's presence and God's hope in evil, and love Boldly, right through evil. You know, we read Lamentations 3, 1 to 18 in the beginning regarding the heartbreak of evil. I didn't read to you Lamentations 3, 21 to 24. Would you like to hear how that prayer goes? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are wounded by evil, confused by evil, hurt by evil. It gives us pause. It gives us questions. Lord, I pray that we would see again just the truth that if there's evil, there's a reality that, that there's you, that you're there, that you are real. 
and we need you. So give us the ability in our brains to know your reality, in our hearts to to see and treasure and trust in the gospel, and in our lives to come together, to come to you, and to go out and love the world. And we thank you for the hope that we have, that one day you will finish the work and you'll put evil to bed to rest forever. We give you glory for this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.